This evening, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 1, actually, and take as our text verses 5 through 18. But we'll begin at verse 1, page 1187 in the Pew Edition Bible. After describing through a series of quotations from the Old Testament, the Lord revealing himself to his people in glory in many ways and at many times, and most prominently in the person of his son, he says then, he picks up the narrative at chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must pay, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And now our sermon text for this evening. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those 
who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Shall we pray? Father, as we hear now the proclamation of your word, pray that your servant may be faithful to the word before him so that the glory and supremacy of Jesus Christ would be first and foremost in this message, but also that your spirit would do his work in ministering to God's people here. We pray that those who are afflicted would be comforted and those who are comfortable unnecessarily would be afflicted as your spirit does his work in the hearts of those who hear the message. Bless, we pray, the preaching of the word. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what are we to make of this letter, this epistle, to the Hebrews? Do you find yourself sometimes reading this epistle and wondering how to make sense of it? It seems very deep. It seems very theological. It has all these quotations in the Old Testament. It draws upon the language and the imagery of the Old Testament. Things like the covenant, things like the priesthood, sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, so many things. And then you have this treatment in chapter 7 of Melchizedek. What are we to make of all of this? Sometimes people shy away from this book of the Bible because they simply feel overwhelmed by the content. I think it's helpful. I think it will be instructive for us tonight, pastorally, if we remember that this epistle, this letter, is a sermon. This was originally given to a congregation, most likely in Rome or the outskirts of Rome, but it was delivered as a sermon. It has a pastoral impulse to it, an underlying foundation of pastoral care. The situation was, if you're not familiar with it, you have these Christians living in Rome, the capital city of the empire, small group, seemingly insignificant compared to the larger world, certainly compared to the Roman Empire. And these Christians have faced hardship. We know from chapter 10, for example, that there were incidences of property stolen, of people being put in prison. They're beginning to experience that, that hardship, severe hardship, maybe not to the point of execution yet, but certainly that which would cause great distress. And naturally, put yourself, again, in the shoes of those who hear this letter for the first time. Put yourself in their situation. What would be the things that would trouble you? What would be the things that are, are at the front and center of your thinking in a situation like that? Imagine if we here in Emmanuel were facing persecution by the government authorities, not just policies that inconvenience us or we disagree with. That's one thing. But I'm talking about having our property confiscated, having the building burned down, Members of the congregation, perhaps your pastor, perhaps your elders, 
being put in prison. You might ask yourself, where is God in all of this? Has God spoken? Is God speaking to us now in this situation? Is God present among us? There was a feeling of being overwhelmed by a sense of their own defenselessness in a hostile world. How do you comfort them? You can't just speak platitudes to them. You can't be flippant about that. These are people who are hurting. You have to speak in real and meaningful ways from the scriptures. And so we see, for example, in chapter 1, the writer, the pastor, we'll call him the pastor, he wants to reassure his readers. He wants to reassure the congregation that God not only has spoken, he's spoken in many times, in many places, through the prophets, through various means, but now he has spoken most definitively in his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation. And then in chapter 2, our text for tonight, answers the question, is God really with us? Is God really nearby to support us, to protect us, to guide us in the way that we should go? And the answer is yes. How do I know that? How can you know that? Because Jesus Christ has assumed our human nature. And so as we work our way through this text tonight, verses 5 through the end of the chapter, I want you to think of, of three images that stand out in terms of this description of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is described, first of all, as our brother. There's something we share with Jesus Christ. There is a solidarity between Christ and his people, you and me. And that's meant to comfort us, strengthen us, revitalize the church. But then there's also the imagery of Jesus as the champion, the warrior, fighting on our behalf. And what does he fight? He fights against sin and death and hell. And he conquers them as the God-man. And then finally, in the last couple of verses, there is the imagery which is really the introduction to the great treatment of the subject throughout this sermon, and that is Jesus Christ as our high priest. Jesus Christ is our high priest. When he assumed our human nature, he assumed our human nature so that he could function as a merciful and a faithful high priest. So let's look at those things tonight. If you have your Bibles open, I think it's important that you keep your Bibles open. We'll begin at verse 5. Notice, their comparison is made here between Jesus and between his people and the angels. Now, there's a lot of speculation about was there a fascination, was there a, an undue emphasis perhaps among Christians in that day upon the role or the place of the angels in God's redemptive plans. But we know that angels are God's servants. They are there to serve not only God, but they are there to serve you. And furthermore, as we read in Hebrews, God sent his son not to save the fallen angels, but his fallen image bearers. And so he says it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, 
and he quotes here from Psalm 8. Now, don't think with the way it's been written in verse 6 that he, he, he's scratching his head trying to remember where he found it. It's simply his way of introducing Scripture. Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? The psalmist, they remember, is reflecting upon his place in the universe. We have those times, those experiences, where maybe you look at a, a clear night, a clear sky at night, and you see the stars, you think about the vastness of the universe, and you think of how relatively puny you and I are. Have you ever had those moments? I know we're very busy people, but sometimes we have to simply stop and reflect upon the fact that it would seem as though we're insignificant. What is man that you, you should be mindful of him? The psalmist is simply overwhelmed. How can it be that, that God would take an interest in me, that God would care for me with such intimacy, such tenderness and love, counting, numbering the hairs of my head, making sure that I have my daily bread? He orders all the affairs of the universe for the benefit of his people. He says, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, understand where the psalm is going. The psalm is really scanning the, the full range of Scripture, the full range of redemptive history. God placed man upon the earth and says what? Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth placing him a little lower than the angels. He is to be God's representative on the earth. But what happens? Sin frustrates that. Sin corrupts that. So rather than exercising his dominion for the glory of God and the joy of man, he worships the creation. He turns the world, as it were, upside down. And he experiences the brokenness of pain of a fallen world. That was not the design that God had intended for his image bearers. Everything was to be put in subjection under his feet. And now the pastor here in Hebrews sees a connection from Adam to the psalmist to Jesus Christ. And then back to man. Because he says, in Jesus Christ, we see God fulfilling our destiny. Jesus Christ fulfilling our destiny. Being made for a short while. That's how the writer here, that's how the pastor uses that expression. For a little while, he is made lower than the angels. He humbles himself. But as a result of his work, as a result of his faithfulness, of his obedience, even to the point of death, he is glorified, and all things are placed in subjection to him so that those who are joined to him by faith will share in that glory. Isn't that marvelous? That's the trajectory of the redemptive story. We see that, that trajectory frustrated, already in paradise, but Jesus Christ has come to redeem that so that we can say, 
And think about the pastoral implications of this. A pastor's writing to this congregation struggling with a sense of, of defenselessness, with a, a, a sense of, where's this all going? Are we going to be snuffed out? He says, no, the pathway we're going on is a pathway that leads to glory. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, verse 8, he left nothing outside his control. And then he makes this observation as a wise pastor. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. I don't think I need to convince you at length about that truth. We still see people dying of disease. We still see violence on our streets. We still see homes that are broken. We see hatred between people. We see the, the powerful manipulating the, the weak and the poor. We see all the evidences of a broken world. How can it be that Jesus Christ is in control of these things? But what do we see? We see him, that is Jesus Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That expression, tasting death for everyone, is a Hebrew expression. It doesn't mean taking just a small bite, nibbling around the edges. To taste death means he experienced it in all of its fullness. When he died on the cross, he died as one who bore the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. And so again, we could say that because of our solidarity, because we're joined to him through faith, we may say that when Jesus suffered and died, he did so in our place as our substitute. So that he would experience not just the physical death, but the condemnation of the Father on your behalf. For it was fitting, it was appropriate, we could say, that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. That's the imagery he wants to use now. There is this joining together. There's this solidarity. There is Jesus, as it were, with his arms around his people. He calls them his brothers and sisters, his family. He has come to redeem them, to gather them, to bring them before the Father and say, here they are, the ones I've redeemed, the ones I laid my life down for. Notice, and many, bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation. Here's another word that we find often in Hebrews. The, the founder of their salvation is made perfect through suffering. Does that imply somehow that he's less than perfect before his incarnation or before his public ministry? No, perfect here in Hebrews means complete well-rounded, or even more technically, it means he meets all the qualifications for his office as mediator. That's what perfect means here. And how is that accomplished? How is it that he is able to function as mediator in the most perfect, complete way? By means of what he suffers. For he who sanctifies 
and those who are sanctified all have one source. Here we have a very clear verse defending the humanity of Jesus Christ. The humanity of Jesus Christ. Again, in the early church, one of the heresies that the church had to wrestle with was not the the doubt about whether Jesus was truly God. It was much more common in the early church, by the way, for people to say, well, we're we're not sure that he's truly man. And there was a, a heresy called docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokao, meaning to appear or to seem. Sort of like a hologram. Here's a Star Wars reference. A hologram. He looks like Jesus. He looks like a real man. But is he a real man? And the answer is yes. Unequivocally, yes. He had the emotions of a true man. He could feel hunger. He could experience pain. When he was crucified, he bled and he could die. It wasn't just something that appeared to be human. He truly was human. And because of that solidarity, that link between our mediator Jesus Christ and his people, notice that is why he is not ashamed to call them, to call you, brothers and sisters. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear tonight? Especially knowing who you are, knowing your shortcomings, knowing that it was your sins that brought him to the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be known as your brother. Yes, he is your Lord. He's your Savior, Redeemer. He is your High Priest, but he is also your brother. And so he quotes here from the Old Testament, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Someone described it this way. It's as if Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord, as it were, stands before the throne of God the Father with his arms around his people like you and me, And he says, behold, I and the children you have given me. What a beautiful statement of our standing before the Lord. When you describe to someone what it means to be justified by grace through faith, what does it mean? It means that when I stand before God as the judge of the universe, I am reckoned, I am declared righteous, because I stand alongside Jesus Christ. His righteousness is my righteousness, imputed through faith. And he puts his arms around us. That is Jesus as our brother. But notice also Jesus as our warrior, our champion. Have you ever thought of Jesus that way? Jesus the fighter? Jesus, the one about to go to battle? You ought to. Jesus, the one who wages war against the the demonic spirits? And as I said this morning, he describes himself as the one who goes into the strong man's house, binds the strong man, and plunders his house. A frail, sickly person doesn't do that, but a warrior does. Since therefore... 
the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, what we have here is an explanation by the pastor of why was it that Jesus didn't just come down from heaven as the eternal son of God and do his work redemptively that way? Why did he have to assume our human nature? Why does he have to become like one of us? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Now, ultimately, we know that the Lord himself, God himself, has power over death. But I think in Hebrews here, the pastor is thinking about the devil who uses death to undermine the confidence, the security of God's people. Have you ever witnessed that? When you've watched someone dying? I hesitate to say this, but I'll share this with you. And perhaps the other pastors with us tonight can, can share their experience sometime as well. But my experience has been, I, I've had numerous saints, godly people, who in their last moments, before they expire, often talk about the battle they wage against Satan himself. Satan who mocks them. Satan who wants to undermine their confidence and the assurance of their salvation. I've had people say to me from hospital beds, it appears as though Satan is right there at the end of my bed telling me I'm not going to receive eternal life. Satan has many ways he tries to undermine that. He points the finger. He's the accuser. And he says, you? <laughs> you think you're going to inherit eternal life? You think you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Really? Knowing what I know about you? Knowing the things that you've done? You think, you think you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus has come in the flesh to silence that accusation to bind the strong man so that the nations, as Revelation says, the nations will no longer be deceived. And what does Paul say in, in 1 Corinthians 15? Jesus is reigning and will continue to reign until every enemy is defeated, the last enemy being death itself. He destroys the one who has power of death and he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That fear of death enslaves. It restricts. It makes people miserable, fearful, in bondage to it. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. When you think of how gloriously the angels are described, how fearful they often are. When they appear, what's the response time and again in the scriptures when someone encounters an angel? It's not like, wow, this is interesting, or oh, that's pretty cool. They're filled with dread. And oftentimes the angel will begin by saying, do not fear. Now, the pastor is saying, think about that, the, the fallen angels. The fallen angels have not been delivered 
from their depravity. But God's children have. I want to read to you some of the images or imagery of Scripture describing God as our warrior, just to give you a sense of the, of the language here in Hebrews 2. And these are from Isaiah. First of all, Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. <laughs> what if we sang that on a regular basis in our worship services? That might change things. That might really stir us up. That the one we're worshiping is a mighty man of war, as it were. Isaiah 49, 24 through 26. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. How about that? What if we sang that on a regular basis? Or Isaiah 59, 15 through 20. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. God is a justice warrior, the right kind, but he is a justice warrior. He identified himself with them as their representative. I'll read again from Isaiah 59. He says, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him, to, brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Why is it we don't hear language like that in the church very much today? I wonder about that. Think of what that does for a congregation thinking itself insignificant, oppressed, weak, vulnerable, to know that God will rescue his people through the warrior who is Jesus Christ. And then the final imagery of Jesus not just as the brother, not just as the champion, but as the high priest. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, sin excluded, of course, so that he might become, notice, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And what is the purpose? What is the function of this high priest? He's the one who stands, remember, between God and man. 
Because boys and girls, remember in the Old Testament, it's very clear that God, God is a holy God. He lives, he dwells in unapproachable light. Anyone who comes near to his holiness will be destroyed. God appears at Mount Sinai and the people tremble. They say, Moses, speak to God on our behalf. We don't want to be destroyed. The Lord said, this mountain that I dwell on, it is holy. You touch that mountain, you die. The whole design of the tabernacle, the temple, was a vivid reminder that an unholy, unclean, tainted people can only come so close to the living God. And a high priest had to stand between them. Someone who could speak before God on behalf of the people. But what kind of a high priest do you want? You want someone who is merciful and faithful. Not someone who will crush the people because of their sin, but someone who will plead on their behalf. And of course, we know that Jesus pleads on behalf of you and me by saying, receive my sacrifice on their behalf. Hebrews will later say, Jesus, as it were, fulfills the, the, the acts of, of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, not bringing the blood of animals, but bringing his own blood be, before the presence of God and saying, let it cleanse the sins of my people my brothers, my sisters. Notice what he does. Notice the language here of verse 17. The high priest who is merciful, faithful. So merciful in terms of his disposition, his attitude towards the people he represents, but also faithful in discharging the duties of his office. And for Jesus in particular, he does not he does not recoil in the face of what it will require of him, that he will have to lay down his own life. He sets his face, the scripture says, he sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem, knowing full well that he will suffer and he will die. He does this for what reason? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. I'm sure in this church you understand what the word propitiation means. I'm sure your pastor or others have talked to you about that. Propitiation simply means to turn aside the holy anger of God. There are a number of people who don't like to hear that word, even people who call themselves Christians, even Bible translations that don't like to use the word propitiation because they think it conjures up images of, a, of an angry God. A wrathful God, and we know that God's not a wrathful, angry God. But what do the scriptures say? God in his holiness is indeed angry and justly so. And Jesus turns that aside, not by trying to, to argue with him or make him turn a blind eye or a deaf ear, but by saying, I will pay the price. I will lay down my life. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And whatever form that temptation takes, the call of the scriptures, the call of the gospel is look to Jesus. Jesus is not going to slap you away. Jesus is not going to say, don't bother me. Jesus is not going to insult you as being weak. 
he's going to say, I have suffered as well. But because I have offered the supreme sacrifice, because I am your high priest, you can persevere. You can overcome this temptation because the trajectory of your life is from shame to glory. And so, congregation, you see now how important it is to read this, this profound book of the Bible as a pastoral letter, a sermon. Not simply to talk about the lofty subjects of theology, but to address real pastoral issues. When I feel defenseless, when I feel vulnerable, when I wonder, has God spoken and is God present? The overwhelming answer to that is God has spoken through His Son. God appears as His Son and continues to appear as our brother, as our champion, and as our faithful and merciful high priest. Persevere then in the knowledge that the God who has revealed himself to you is the God ultimately who is for you. Let us pray. Our God and Father, It is a, a marvelous thing for us to read about the loving condescension of Jesus Christ, the one who made himself of no account, humbled himself even to the point of death, and yet, by doing so, he has become our conqueror, our warrior, standing alongside of us. He has become our brother, embracing us. And he ministers on our behalf as a, a faithful high priest. Father, we pray that our love for this Savior, Jesus Christ, may grow and increase. That our lives may be offered to him as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so may we think on these things, Father, for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. We pray this for Jesus' name.